Section four of the seen and the unseen by Richard Marsh. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Sonia. Two, the photographs, Chapter three. They sent up a report to the commissioners. It was rather a compound document. It was drawn up by the governor, the doctor, and Mr. Dodsworth in concert, with here and there a word or two from Mr. Murray, while in a sort of postscript warder slater was brought in it narrated at some length and with a considerable amount of circumlocution in accordance with official traditions the story of the photographs the negatives went with the report they were submitted to the impartial judgment of the commissioners to take or leave just as they pleased mr paley was particularly anxious that in the report there should not only be no suggestion of the supernatural but that there should be a distinct disclaimer of any suggestion of the kind on this point there was a slight difference of opinion the doctor insisted that the things which had occurred could not have occurred without the interposition of something out of the natural he wished to insert in his portion of the report a gentle hint to the effect that they might have hit which hit would tend to the advancement of photographic science upon a novel force mr dodsworth had or declared that he had no theories either one way or the other he would have liked the report to have contained nothing but a bald statement of facts while mr murray however no one paid the slightest attention on this point to mr murray because while he had the smallest possible belief in human nature he had the strongest belief in ghosts as for warder slater what was warder slater's state of mind upon the matter may be better judged from a report which he made to the governor upon his own account a couple of days after the report had been sent the reports on that particular morning numbered only one that one was warder slater and the man reported was george solly warder and prisoner took up their positions before the court which was drawn across the room and on the other side of which sat the governor at his table the warder if small in height was large in girth a prodigy of stoutness the prisoner was tall and slender as regards physical proportions they presented a pleasing contrast the officer seemed for some cause or other to be not altogether at his ease the governor opened the inquiry well slater what is it man talking in his night cell sir to himself or to whom the officer fidgeted with batavian grace it's my belief sir he had someone in his night cell along with him someone with him in his night cell yes sir and it's my belief it was a woman a woman the governor looked at the culprit probably becoming for the first time fully conscious that that culprit was george solly just then dr livermore entered the office at the back he stood and listened the officer explained i was on night duty last night sir and i was going my rounds about half past one when as i entered ward c i heard sounds of someone talking i found that someone was talking inside of thirteen c george solly's prison number was thirteen c the number being that of the cell he occupied i listened outside of thirteen c and i heard two voices two voices yes sir two voices and one of them a woman's a woman's yes sir a woman's i heard it most distinct 
I could hear what they were saying. They were regularly carrying on. I heard Solly say, my own true love. I heard the woman say, sweetheart, and a lot more like that. As if suspecting the presence somewhere of a smile, Warder Slater all at once became emphatic. I'm willing to take my Bible oath. I heard it. The governor regarded the slightly excited officer through his spectacles with that calm, passionless official look which he was famous for. He turned to the culprit. Solly, what have you to say? Solly's reply was somewhat unexpected. What Mr. Slater says is true. You were talking in your night cell to a woman? I was. I was talking to my wife. Don't trifle, my man, with me. I suppose you mean that you were engaged in some little ventriloquial performance. Solly hesitated. It was noticed when he spoke that in his manner there was a certain exultation, a suggestion of suppressed excitement. You will remember that, some days ago, I received a letter from my wife. In that letter she told me that she was always with me in the jail, and that I was to watch for her. Solly paused. The governor made a slight gesture as of interruption, but then seemed to change his mind, and the man continued. I did watch. It seemed to me that sometimes I felt her touch, that I heard the rustle of her garments, that I even heard her voice. But the consciousness of these things was such a faint one that I supposed, my attention being so acutely strained, that I had allowed myself to be deceived by my imagination. Until last night. Solly paused again. This time the governor made no attempt at interruption. Last night I could not sleep. I lay, dreaming, wide awake. I was wondering where my wife was and what she was doing, and whether she was thinking of me as I was thinking then of her, when I felt a touch upon my lips and found that my wife was in my arms. I don't think that I was startled, because I had half expected that she would come to me in some such way as that. But I was very glad. We sat together on the side of the bed, and she talked to me, and I to her. As Mr. Slater says, we carried on, until Mr. Slater entered. Yes, said Warder Slater, when I had had enough of listening, and wondering whoever could be carrying on with Solly, I opened the door soft-like, so that I might catch him at it, whoever it was, and I saw Solly sitting on the side of the bed, and someone, I couldn't quite make out who, because I don't mind owning that I felt a bit flurried, because how anybody, let alone a woman, could have got into Solly, was more than I could understand. But I saw it was a woman was sitting by his side, and she had her arms about his neck, and he had his arms about her waist. Well, the monosyllable came from the governor. Warder Slater had paused. Well, sir, I just caught a glimpse of her, and she was gone. Gone like a thing of air, before I had a chance to open my mouth. I don't mind owning that I didn't quite like it at that time of night and all, but I says to Solly, who's that you had in here along with you? And he says, it was my wife. I shall report you, I says, and I went outside. Did you hear any more talking? No, sir, I did not, although I stopped outside some time and listened. And I came back half a dozen times, and each time I listened, but I never heard a sound. The prisoner took up the tale. 
she came back once and kissed me and whispered just one word and after that i fell asleep and slept until the morning the governor leaned back in his chair he seemed to be considering he regarded the prisoner intently the prisoner meeting his glance with perfect self-possession at last he said that will do take the man away and warder slater and the prisoner departed as they went out dr livermore came forward the governor turned to him is that you doctor have you heard that edifying little story what do you think of it murray you can go on that hint the chief warder also went the governor and the doctor were alone when they were alone the two officials dropped to a perceptible degree their official manner frankly paley i don't know what to think you don't mean to say that you believe in the genuineness of that story as it was told to us i repeat i don't know what to think you see there are not only those photographs and the woman's letter but there is something else besides paley i've been breaking the rules how i've been carrying a detective camera about with me and i've been taking a snapshot at that man solly whenever i got the chance you have have you it's just as well you didn't tell me or i should have been down on you my friend well and what was the idea never mind what the idea was i'll tell you what the result is the result is nineteen photographs and in each of them with the exception of two there's the woman you don't mean it i do mean it those photographs are my own property i've half a mind to lay them before the society for psychical research i flatter myself that they would constitute as neat a case for inquiry as that august society has yet encountered livermore none of that there'll be trouble if you do i'm only jesting i'm not likely to give myself away but i mean to keep those photographs i mean to write their history and i mean to leave them to my heirs and a ghost story to the ages seriously paley it's nonsense to suppose that i could have photographed a woman seventeen times if she hadn't been there to photograph she must have been visible to the camera if she was invisible to me and from being visible to the camera to being visible and even audible and tangible to solly and even slater it's but one step further and that's why i say referring to the story which solly and slater have just now told that i don't know what to think and candidly i tell you again i don't i tell you what i mean to do i mean to have that man transferred that's one way out of it certainly transfer the solution of the ghost story on to someone else's shoulders have you heard anything about the report our report i mean yes this morning hardinge's coming down to-morrow hardinge nice sort of man to whom to entrust a case like that might as well expect an elephant to dance lightly upon eggshell china blundering bull major hardinge the gentleman thus disrespectfully alluded to was no less a personage than one of the inspectors of her majesty's prisons as such he was a personage who as is well known ought to have been regarded by all properly constituted official minds with awe and respect to speak of nothing else on the morrow he appeared 
having scampered round the prison in his usual twenty-mile-an-hour fashion he attacked the subject in hand in that tumultuous hearty way he had paley what's all this stuff and nonsense about those photographs i'm surprised at you pon my word i am may i inquire major hardinge why the governor was the official to the finger-tips again send up a cock-and-bull story like that to headquarters what do you think that we're likely to make out of it a ghost story there can't be the slightest doubt in the world paley that somebody's been playing tricks with you that's the general opinion at the office may i ask major hardinge if i am supposed to be the person who has been playing tricks on mr paley the inquiry came from dr livermore i'm not here to inquire who is or who isn't in fact i'm not here to make any inquiry at all the case upon the face of it is too trivial for inquiry we've decided to squash it but since i am here i may as well see this man uh what's his name solly just so it appears that there are some peculiar circumstances in the case of this man uh solly i shouldn't be surprised if you've got the wrong man here after all the wrong man major how do you mean oh, those wise heads at the quarter sessions have made a mistake one more example of the immaculate perfection of the system of trial by jury mind i don't say that this is so i say that it seems possible that it is so the circumstances as they exist at present and which are not to be disclosed to the man solly the major glared first at the governor then at the doctor these three were closeted together are as follows the other day a man walked into the yard and gave himself up for embezzlement the day before yesterday it was when they began to inquire into the matter it turned out that the thing of which he accused himself had taken place down here at beddingfield over the way there and was the very thing for which the man solly had been tried found guilty and sentenced to two years hard labor what is the name of the man who gave himself up the major scratched his head ah nasty name i know it struck me directly i heard it as being a nasty name the sort of name you'd rather be hung than have let me see i've got it here the major took out a bulky pocket-book and out of the pocket-book a paper here it is evan Bradle. that's the fellow's name i've known men commit suicide for less things than having to own to a name like that the doctor took something from his pocket it was a photograph do you see the name which is written upon the slate which that man holds eh do you see major the name which is on that slate the major took up the photograph he peered closely at it evan evan Bradle, isn't it is this the man that major you should know better than i you may have seen him i haven't but that appears to be his name of which fact i was unaware until you mentioned it if that is a likeness of the man Bradle, i think major that even you will allow that the thing is curious because that happens to be a print from one of the negatives which we sent to the commissioners and which was taken from the man george solly the major glared you're at that cock-and-bull story again in this age of enlightenment and you a medical man sir i'm surprised at you i really am i don't want to discuss the matter the office is willing to consider the incident as closed 
and i may say that i'm instructed not to discuss the matter a pretty thing it would be if it got about in the papers ghost at canterstone jail upon my word there'd be a scandal i shouldn't be surprised if the commissioners felt themselves impelled to institute changes changes sir to 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 return to this man solly and the man uh what's his name Braddle. it it appears that this man Braddle tells a cock-and-bull story another cock-and-bull story major yes sir another cock-and-bull story there are always plenty of them in the air as you will learn for yourself when you reach my age as i was saying when i was interrupted it appears that this man Braddle tells a cock-and-bull story about being haunted and even persecuted by this man solly's wife in dreams and that sort of rubbish until she has driven him to remorse and that kind of thing in fact there seems every probability that the man will be found to be a lunatic i should like to bet two to one he isn't the major glowered at the doctor as though he could scarcely believe his ears bet sir bet sir do i understand you to say that you offer to bet sir you appear to have extraordinary notions of the proper method of conducting an official inquiry sir in spite of your sporting offer sir perhaps you will allow me to repeat although i have no desire to bet sir that i have a strong reason to believe that the man will be found to be a lunatic and i base that statement to a great extent upon the grounds that in my opinion every man who tells a cock-and-bull story and persists in it in spite of common sense is upon the face of it a lunatic the doctor deeming discretion to be the better part of valour contented himself with bowing so the major was free to air himself in another direction but although as i say it is my opinion that the man will be found to be a lunatic and the whole affair fall through still as i am here i may as well see this man solly and put to him a question or two solly was seen by the major the major asked him if his name was solly what his age was if he was married if he had any children what he had been charged with where he had been charged and such like questions and finally he asked him if he had any complaint to make of the treatment he had received in the jail solly replied that he had none then the major drew himself up in a manner which seemed intended to impress the beholders with the fact of what a very remarkable man he was he threw his frock-coat open and he thrust his thumbs into the armholes of his waistcoat there is another question which i wish to ask you solly have you ever been photographed do you mean in prison no i am aware that you have been photographed in prison the major glinted at the doctor out of the corner of his eyes i mean outside before you came to prison certainly several times you will understand solly that you are in no way bound to answer the questions which i am putting to you now i am only asking them for my own private satisfaction but have you any objection to tell me whether any difficulty has been experienced in taking your photograph difficulty in what way in any way have the photographs which have been taken of you been satisfactory solly smiled a little faintly perfectly indeed i have understood that i am rather a good subject than otherwise may i ask why you inquire 
i ask because the photographs which have been taken of you in the prison have not been satisfactory that will do you can take the man away i am glad that he has no complaint to make when solly had departed the major turned to the doctor i believe dr livermore that you are an amateur photographer of course the fact of your being a medical man explains that you are i am but my being an amateur has nothing to do with these particular photographs i have no hesitation in saying that regarded merely as photographs they are first-rate in your opinion doubtless the major's tone was dry he rose i mean nothing offensive to dr livermore but the commissioners object to experiments being made in her majesty's prisons in future you will please paley not to allow them the treatment to which that man solly has been subjected can scarcely be justified who is the man dodsworth who is responsible for some of the photographs have you employed him before mr dodsworth is a highly respectable photographer in the town he has been frequently employed in the prison and has always given satisfaction don't employ him again employ somebody else next time if you can't find anyone the commissioners will send you a man from town i'm going paley i think that's all i have to say and major hardinge shook the dust of canterstone jail from off his feet that night in canterstone jail something rather curious occurred it was very late not only had the prisoners retired they retired at eight as they should have done in the days when they were young but the warders had retired too they retired at ten and even the governor who of course retired when he pleased but who observed virtuous hours as a rule had sought his pillows with the rest it was the rule at canterstone when the prisoners withdrew to their plank couches for the day warders to withdraw from the actual precincts of the jail they occupied a row of cottages on the other side of the wall the night warders came on duty in list slippers they promenaded with more or less frequency the wards in the silent watches of the night at the absolutely sepulchral hour of two a m on the occasion which has been referred to a figure might have been observed stealing along the path which ran outside one of the wards in the direction of the governor's house the figure was not that of an escaped felon not at all the figure was the figure of a warder he appeared to be in considerable haste for he had not stayed to remove the list slippers from his feet and he moved along as fast as he possibly could he was great in girth with his lantern in his hand the governor's house was in the very centre of the prison when this warder reached it he rang the bell and he not only rang it but he gave it a mighty tug the bell like a surgeon's was a night bell it was hung in the apartment which was occupied not only by mr paley but by mrs paley too so that when the bell was tugged like that the lady could scarcely fail to hear it if the gentleman deemed it wiser to sleep on warder slater for the warder was warder slater had no necessity to give a second tug in a remarkably short space of time a window was opened overhead and a head came out the head was the governor's who's there warder slater sir what's the matter there's a ghost in ward c sir a ghost yes sir there's that woman in solly's cell again sir it is no slight thing for the warder of a prison to rouse the governor in the middle of the night or what is the same thing at so early an hour as two a m 
it is well understood that there are occasions on which the governor must be roused but the commissioners have not distinctly stated whether the occasion of the presence of a ghost is one of them perhaps the omission has occurred because a ghost is so rare a visitor even in a prison which sees strange visitors that the thing seemed scarcely worth providing against whatever may have been the governor's private opinion on the matter he contented himself with saying before he closed the window wait i'm coming and he did come slipping into some of his clothes with a degree of dispatch which would have done credit to the schoolboy who delays his rising from bed until he hears the breakfast bell some more nonsense later that was the governor's dryly uttered observation as he joined the warder well sir you will see for yourself sir when we get there governor and warder started off together towards ward c as they moved over the pebbly path the warder whose state of mind did not seem to be a state of perfect ease endeavoured to explain i've been in that ward a dozen times to-night sir i thought more than once that i heard the sound of someone whispering but i wasn't quite sure until i went in just now sir directly i went in this last time i knew that there was something up i stood outside of number thirteen's door and sure enough i heard that woman talking to solly and carrying on with him just as she was the other night sir i didn't hardly know what to do sir because i says to myself if i report the man the governor won't believe me then i makes up my mind to come and tell you sir so that you could come and see for yourself i don't know if we shall find her there now sir she may have gone but that she was there a couple of minutes ago when i came to fetch you i'll take my bible oath that'll do we shall see if she's there when we get there the governor's tone was not reassuring but then it seldom was his official tone was not reassuring warder slater heartily hoped that she would be there he began to be conscious that it was quite within the range of possibility that the governor might be disposed to make an example of a warder who routed him out of bed in the middle of the night to see a ghost which was neither to be seen nor heard they entered the prison which was itself a ghostly place to enter they went in by the round house and there it was not so bad but when they began to mount the cold worn stone steps which wound up between the massive whitewashed walls the darkness rendered still more visible by the lantern in the warder's hand one began to realize that after all there might be visions about canterstone jail was an old-fashioned jail built in the good old-fashioned days when stone walls six feet thick were considered a sine qua non in jails in the broad noonday glare the wards in which the night cells were were dimly lighted entering them at two a m one received an object lesson in egyptian darkness one had but to stretch out one's arms to more than span the flagstone passage and when one realized that on one side there was a six-foot wall and on the other surrounded it is true by other six-foot walls but none the further off for that lay the representatives of every shade of crime one did not need to have an abnormal imagination to begin to comprehend that it is not always the part of wisdom to laugh at the tales which are told of churchyards yawning and of the graves which yield the dead at canterstone there were in each ward four floors the ground floor the first floor the second floor and the third floor solly's sleeping-place was on the third floor that farthest from the ground and nearest to the sky 
the governor and warder slater entered the ward at one end solly's cell being at the other directly they reached the landing the warder laid his hand on mr paley's arm do you hear sir she's with him still there was a note of exultation in the officer's voice which seemed all things considered to be a little out of place the governor made no reply he stood and listened the general's stillness rendered any sound there might be still more audible that there was a sound there could be no doubt the governor listened so as to be quite clear in his own mind as to what the sound was it was the sound of voices unless his sense of hearing played him false the speakers were too which is solly's cell the governor put the question in a whisper in a whisper the officer replied number thirteen right the other end sir that's where they're talking he and the woman come along with me sir and we shall catch them at it the governor checked the impulsive slater darken your lantern you have your keys when we reach the door keep perfectly still until i give you the order then unlock the door and throw the light of your lantern into solly's cell warder slater darkened his lantern in the pitchy blackness the governor and the warder stole along the corridor they were guided by the sense of sound guided by that sense they paused at the spot where the talking seemed to be most audible is this the cell the governor's voice seemed scarcely to penetrate the darkness the warder's yes was but an echo the silence was profound except on the other side the door on the outer side of which they two were standing there was someone talking in the cell the speakers seemed to be two an attentive ear could catch the words which were being spoken i could not rest until you knew and so i came to tell you so that there might be an end to your suspense and that you might not need to wait until the morning for the news the speaker was a woman of a surety the speaker was a woman my darling this time the speaker unmistakably was solly then there ensued what warder slater had described as carryings on the governor's sensations must have been of a somewhat speckled variety as he played the part of eavesdropper to proceedings such as those because there could be not the slightest possible shadow of doubt that within that cell there were carryings on there came to them who listened the sound of a woman's voice uttering in tones so tender they fell like sweet music on the ear loves and sweethearts and my own own darlings and such like vanities and to her replied a man in tones as tender if not as musical who did his best to give the woman a fair exchange for her conversational sweetmeats of affection but when it came to kissing audible in its prolonged ecstasy on the outer side of that thick oaken door the governor seemed to think that it was time that something should be done now he whispered and almost simultaneously the key was turned in the well-oiled lock the door was thrown wide open and warder slater's lantern gleamed into the cell then there was silence both in the cell and out of it and the governor stood within the open doorway with the warder just in front of him a little to one side so as not to obstruct the governor's view and the lantern in his hand and both of these officials stared stared hard 
for in front of them stood solly in considerable undress and at his side it is probably owing to the governor's proverbial official caution that he could never be induced to say what was at solly's side to say positively that is it seemed to him it was a woman not such a woman as we meet in daily life but as it were the shadow of a woman it seemed to the governor that she was attired in robe de nuit solly held her by the hand the governor thought he saw so much but before he had a chance of seeing more she fled or vanished into air his eyes never ceased to gaze at solly's side and there was nothing there when there could be no doubt that the tangible presence of the something which had been standing there had gone the governor's voice rang out sharp and clear solly who was that you were talking to it was my wife your wife the governor stared there was a peculiar ring in his voice which probably no prisoner had ever heard in it before i will have you punished in the morning the prisoner smiled in his voice there was also a ring but it was a ring of a different kind no mr paley you will not because in the morning i shall be free solly paused as if to give the governor an opportunity of speaking but the opportunity was not taken so he went on my wife has come to bring me good news he turned he held out his arms as if to take someone within them but they could see no one there to take and he said good-bye until the morning wife he advanced his face as if to kiss someone and there was the sound of a kiss but they could see no one who could have kissed him then he turned again to mr paley crying in a voice which was half tears half laughter it's all come out at last Braddles confessed the home secretary has procured a free pardon you will have it in the morning my wife has been to tell me so it is certain that the governor could not have had much sleep that night warder slater roused him at two a m and if when he returned to bed again he was inclined to slumber he had not much opportunity for the indulgence of his inclination at an unusually early hour he was roused again a special messenger had arrived from town bringing with him a communication from the home secretary for the governor of canterstone jail the communication took the form of that bitter wrong of which the system of english jurisprudence still is guilty the home secretary informed the governor of canterstone jail that her majesty the queen had been graciously pleased to grant a free pardon to the prisoner george solly for what he had never done end of section four